Welcome to Black's Academy and also welcome to our monthly market mix. In our monthly market mixes, we provide Black's Academy listeners with a little bit more information than just about the U.S. stock market. We provide a top-down view and vantage point so that you can be more aware, more educated, and more able to move forward in finding investing and trading opportunities. Let's begin. In our last monthly market mix, we saw that the market did indeed sell in May. Now, whether or not we go away during the summer is to be seen. Center stage for the markets goes to the bond markets. And even though the stock market in May had one of its worst months in years, the bond market was far worse. The losses had not been as bad as they had been in 50 years. And specifically in U.S. Treasuries, we haven't seen such losses since the Civil War. We want to talk about the situation in the world's third largest freestanding economy, Japan. Right now, the Japanese yen is at a major sell-off point against the U.S. dollar and other currencies, and we'd like to talk about what that means for that economy, for the world economy, and maybe some opportunities for those of you who are interested in currency markets. The CPI is still kicking at multi-decade highs. The Fed is still full steam ahead on interest rates. U.S. housing market is showing a different color, and this as ugly as it may be for sellers, may be a bright spot for buyers or not. And of course, we have the Russo-Ukraine war, and we'll talk a little bit about commodities and more FX, but specifically, we'll talk about crude oil. Bonds had the worst month performance in May that they had had in decades. Bonds tend not to be as volatile as stocks because of their makeup, because of their composition. And this is one reason why long-term institutional investors, investors with large sums of money, now like to invest in bonds. Bonds offer, generally speaking, some level of security. They're not guaranteed, but they offer some level of security and in some cases, some generate income for portfolios. And even in basic conventional portfolios, bonds are often complemented to stocks. You tend to buy a certain fraction of bonds, typically large, compared to stocks, such that the theory is stocks as stocks and equities go up, bonds go down, and vice versa. When stocks are stressed, investors typically run to bonds. The problem with that is recently, and not just now, but recently in the last maybe two decades, we're starting to see less of that happening. In fact, in 2008, 2018, and also in 2020, we saw sell-offs of bonds alongside equities. This kind of goes against the conventional theory that is behind what's called the 60-40 portfolio, which if you have an investment plan, a retirement plan with an employee or something of that sort, you probably have a 60-40 or something, type, something similar as a strategy. Well, bonds in May sold off just as hard as equity, so they did not provide the level of support in the short term. Now, that may change, and we're going to look at the bond market just briefly. But I wanted to bring this out to show that oftentimes, as you're learning about the markets, one reason to learn about the markets is to dispel some of the common strategies, because as the markets change, what is often common itself changes. So 
looking at the bond market and seeing how the bond market works from a technical perspective, looking at its chart and also understanding what happens may give you investors and definitely traders some opportunities to go on in the future. One thing I'd like to mention about bonds before we move on is the fact that it's not all dire out here. If we look at bonds over the long term, and as with most investments, you should, bond investors right now, even though they're shying heavily away from bonds, and shy, I mean almost tongue-in-cheek, because again, it's been the worst it's been in over a century in some cases. If you look at bond investors that remain continuously invested and actually continue to do so over the long term, falling rates, well, again, rising rates, excuse me, and falling bond prices may actually benefit them. If you look at just a 10-year situation here where we have unchanged yields in blue, a scenario where the yields rise 100 basis points or a whole point, which of course will make the actual value of the bonds fall in the light blue or the inverse where the yields fall and the actual bond prices rise in the yellow. You can see that over a long period of time, if bond buyers continue to buy longer dated bonds, that the actual portfolio itself will start to correct and go higher as seen in the light blue here. Then in the short term, if you were buying the bonds that the actual coupon prices rose and the yields fail, because if you look at it over time, if you're buying the actual bond itself at a lower rate, your return on investment over time is going to be less, even though you're buying, uh, I guess you could say a less highly valued bond in the short term in the light blue, but you're buying it at a higher rate of return. If you keep doing that over time and things start to normalize, then you actually get the bond's value itself returning to par. And then you also have the higher rates in which you purchase them at. So big time bond market purchasers. And if you look at some of the institutional buyers, they may be looking at this situation that we have now, well, maybe not exactly right now, but in the long term. This could honestly be buying opportunity if you're looking at it from a much longer standpoint than just this is the worst bond market sell-off in a month. But that was just for a silver lining. I want to turn more now towards why we're still talking about midnight in the markets. And that takes us to basically the profitless companies, IPOs, tech, and a lot of the stuff that we love to buy or have loved to buy the last few years. Interestingly enough, as the market sold off, we said that the larger market sold off to about 38.2% of its value since the lows of March of 2020 to the highs of December of 2021. But startup companies, IPOs, have gotten slaughtered in 2022. There's a lot of reasons behind this. Generally speaking, you could say that this market sell-off was a deleveraging. You had a lot of sweet, cheap money that was being put into a lot of overhyped companies. And very interesting, we can see that this cheap money cash boom, as you look at it over the last 50 years, you can see that around 63% of 
U.S. publicly listed manufacturers, just in the manufacturing sector, not looking at tech, not looking at consumer discretionary, 63% of manufacturers were unprofitable in 2020 compared to 19% 50 years ago. So you can see that a lot of hot money, cheap money, was being piled into even the manufacturing sector, which is not known to be a hot money sector. Almost 80% of IPOs were unprofitable in 2019. And that's significant because that's before the pandemic. A lot of this was fueled by private equity gains. Again, the companies buying up the companies before and then selling them off in exit events in the stock market, selling them to you in these IPOs. This is one reason why I've been very bearish, even vocally so, about buying into IPOs. And we've seen what looks like the apex of this, and I'll show you another index in just a second. But what kind of goes along with this is you can see we had a height, a peak IPO valuations at over a quarter trillion dollars in Q1 of 2021. You can also see that this correlates with the stock market hitting its peak values in 2021. You can see small caps and tech and a lot of the foreign markets also hit peaks long before the S&P did. This correlates with this overvaluation, if you would call it, and then the subsequent loss of value in the stocks in the quarters until here we are now. And right now, fundraising is at all time lows since it's been recorded. There may have been fundraising levels lower than this, but they have not been recorded. So we went from boom to bust and it reflects in the charts. Speaking of, where are we in terms of inflation? We're pretty much still at the highs. A lot of the reports found reprieve in the fact that consumer price inflation, as it was measured in May, was at 8.3%. But keep in mind that the 40-year high in inflation was 8.5% in March numbers. Now, remember, what's reported in May is actually for the month prior to. So for consumer price inflation, it's the month prior to that is reported in the active month. So in May, we're reporting April numbers. In, in April, we're reporting March numbers, as you can see in the chart. And in April, we're at 8.3, but March numbers, 8.5%. We're still very elevated as we're looking forward. And even though analysts are saying that we expect that the numbers that are going to be reported for May and June in just a few weeks are going to be less, I can tell you they were not. It was still higher. We were still at 8.4% in May. Peak inflation has not hit yet. We may be at the peak, but we haven't had enough of a fall off from this high inflation. And it's not just in the U.S., it's worldwide. As you can see, some of the areas, you know, you take it with a grain of salt. We're not in Argentina or Venezuela or Turkey or, you know, Sudan or any of these nations that are seeming to have unreal levels of inflation. But as we can feel in your pocketbooks at the gas stations, the United States with having such a large economy, again, the world's largest freestanding economy, having inflation above 5%, we're almost double that, and expected to stay that way for a while, is going to impact us all because our economy is a much larger, much more complex and wide ranging. So they can call for peak inflation as much as they want. It's still here to stay and we're still going to feel the effects. And this is going to affect, again, the stock market as well as your savings rates. So be mindful of that as we go forward. 
one of the things that's not really talked about in context, when you say pain at the pump or crude oil, or talking about Russia and how it all works is that the United States is actually the world's largest oil producer. That means we produce more oil than anybody else on the planet. The interesting thing here is that we're also the second largest oil exporter and also an importer too. China being number one. But most of our oil does not come from Russia. Russia's number three on the list, as you can see here, accounting for almost 8%. But our nearby native neighbors, Canada and Mexico, are where we get the big, largest chunk of our oil and petroleum products too, not just crude oil, but a lot of different petroleum products. Most of it comes from Canada. In fact, more than half of it. Reason is actually pretty simple. It's geographic proximity. As with any commodity, any product, the cost of getting it from where you made it to where it's being used increases with distance. It increases with, you know, the complexity of the types of products and things of that nature. So if you look at it, even as we're importing and we're exporting, all of the, the free trade agreements in North America are there for, for the purpose of making sure that we have access to, relatively speaking, fairly cheap fuel. Now, the problem is, again, Russia is third in line. So that 8%, believe it or not, has to be accounted some. So I can't say in truth that, oh, the Russian war won't affect some of our fuel prices. Yes, it will, which is why you'll see in the political sphere that Biden has been talking to OPEC and OPEC plus countries about striking some deals. But I think that's just grandstanding, to be honest. The fact of the matter is, I think the larger effects of inflation, just like we saw happen before the war kicked off, having those abate is going to have a much greater effect on what we see at the pump specifically than looking at this. Because again, if you look at it, our issues would be with Canada and Mexico, not with Russia. That's just a tidbit, but I wanted to give the overall picture here to make sure that we're not just sucked into what the media says about how Russia directly impacts it. There is some impact, but it is not as all-consuming as you would might expect. Now, before we close, I wanted to show an opportunity that presents itself in the larger, broader market, and specifically in the currency markets. But first, we have to take a look at Japan, and specifically, Japanese inflation rates. Inflation has been a long-standing issue since the coronavirus stimulus programs around the world enacted by central banks to make sure that the world stayed afloat during the pandemic. It is, as we've talked about in the United States and elsewhere, raised asset prices, raised the cost of living, and presented a pretty negative thing for most of the world and its citizens. However, in Japan, the economy which is still very large, it is the third largest freestanding economy in the world, has a curious inflation outlook. Japan has experienced since 1991 was considered to be three lost decades of economic growth following wild speculation and pretty much heinous bank lending in the 90s. Japan's economy has been fighting deflation or at least disinflation. 
So the rising inflation rates around the world, and as we're starting to see now in 2021, 2022, has a curious effect in Japan. Japan's economy, which is direly needed stimulus, so much so that the Japanese government has been buying bonds daily to keep the rates low and to stimulate the economy into some form of growth, now is looking to, for the first time in years, may meet its inflation target. But what does that actually mean? Check out the charts in the video version of this update. So to wrap up, what do we have left? We've talked about the market sell-off, the dire situation in bonds, also how startups, IPOs, and a lot of profitless companies are now having their midnight moment. And we've also talked about the Bank of Japan and an opportunity with the Japanese yen. CPI remains elevated at 8.3%, and the Fed rate hikes are expected to continue. The things we haven't talked about, and we'll go out on this, is housing markets, and of course, maybe the U.S. labor markets, because we just had a non-foreign payrolls report. Housing prices in the U.S. are starting to show some sign of cooling. If you look at just existing home sales, you can see that they've actually gone negative in 2022. And as a, as a result, there is sort of a bifurcation here. Below 500,000, home prices are actually decreasing. Above 500,000, they're still rising. But what that's starting to show is that the real estate market, which has been red hot, may actually start to cool down. This can have some more implications for the market as a whole. Also, in the last labor report, last Friday, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported an addition of 390,000 jobs in the month of May. This was slightly below expectations, but what we're seeing is wages are up really high in May and also in the year in total. We can see just in a couple of the mainstay regions or mainstay sectors of the job markets where the average hourly earnings are up the most. Leisure and hospitality is leading the most because this is one of the hardest hit areas and is one of the most in-demand areas. Labor force participation, which is the number of people working and people who are actively looking for work, is pretty high at 62.3%. The thing here for the Fed is this. Everybody likes to see higher wages, but the problem with higher wages is that companies having to pay and shoulder the burden and the expense of higher wages will sometimes pass this on into the cost of the goods and services that they perform, which actually increases inflation. So what ends up happening is that of people having more money to spend, they actually are just keeping up with inflation. So it's like the wages that they're getting are just getting eaten up by inflation. So if there was actually some slowdown or at least moderation in wages and or jobs that actually may help the Fed in achieving this balance between its labor mandate and its inflation mandate. This is an ongoing struggle with monetary policy, and it's something we're going to look at going forward because this is what's going to influence what happens in the markets and not just the stock markets, but all of them. We hope you enjoyed this June monthly market mix. Look for us again for next month. We're going to have a much larger, much more depth one in July because it's going to be quarterly and also the kickoff of the second half of the year. Make sure you don't miss it. We hope you always know enough to move forward. Thank you.
For more information about our trading and investing courses, visit www.blacks.academy. That's B-L-A-X-E dot academy.